Um, if you're tired of those openings during this sermon series, the good news for you is this is the last weekend of the series, so no more of those. But if you like them, uh, they're kind of fun. I, something strikes me, though, as I see that uh, multiple times this weekend. It's at the beginning of each of my sermons. The women on our pastoral team are very smart because they didn't get involved in this silly skit. I don't know how they got away with that, but they did. So Pam and Amanda and uh, Ellie, uh, wise choice uh, from you guys for, for not being in there. But the love boat. How many of you are old enough to remember the love boat? I mean, when it was on, about half. Uh, if you're watching in, in Ankeny or Des Moines or uh, Waukee or Johnston Grimes or Forest City or Ames or watching online, I'm assuming half of you raised your hand in that room, too. Um, I'm of an era that remembers. I was about fourth grade when this show came out with Captain Steubing, Gopher, Isaac, Talk, and Julie. Not that I watched a lot and I know their names by heart easily. <laughs> but it was on right before Fantasy Island. The plane, the plane. I mean, it was a great night of TV. It was just the best Saturday nights when you were home with the family. Our friends are over. You'd watch The Love Boat. <laughs> which is just a ridiculous show when you think about it. Uh, here's the way it would work. If you don't know anything about the love boat, if you're in the half, they're like, what's the love boat? Uh, it's this really kind of interesting show where people would come on the love boat, uh, usually uh, actors who couldn't find work in any other show would come on the love boat. It's kind of like right before Hollywood Squares. They'd come on the love boat and they would uh, be a part of three different skits, I guess, or three different ep uh, mini-episodes that combined would make up the 60-minute show. And they'd kind of jump from one to the other to the other and back and forth, and the crew would get involved, and the plot was almost always the same. People would come on board uh, the, the love boat with high hopes for love. Shortly thereafter, some terrible thing would happen in their relationships, or, or, or something would be completely destroyed, uh, and hearts would be broken, and the, you know, the world was, was crumbling, and then magically, miraculously, maybe it was a talk with Julie, or, or Isaac would stir up the perfect drink and talk it over, or, or Captain Steubing would sit down at the captain's table with somebody and set them straight, and, and, and within 60 minutes, everybody lived happily ever after. All, these, all these, these love connections were made and people would walk off the boat and, and, and they'd have these happy smiles and hugs. It was, it was a happily ever after inning. If only it was that simple. I mean, at least TV shows today are more realistic, like The Bachelor. <laughs> oh... I could do a whole series uh, on, on the darkness of that show, but I mean, is it really any surprise that when you date 28 people with cameras following you wherever you go all at the same time over a period of weeks that that relationship might not last? <laughs> that it might not, I mean, are, are you really that shocked when you find out after somebody's forced to get down on a knee and pr propose to a woman he only met a few weeks ago and they've been, uh, everything they've done has been seen by the whole world uh, all along? Are you really, I'm, so, I can tell you, I I can tell I'm offending some of you right now. You're like, you know, you can preach about anything you want, but you go after The Bachelor, and that's, that's pretty much my religion. <laughs> you need a new religion, uh, is what, but there, there's, 
it, it, it shouldn't surprise us, should it, that we find out later that that couple didn't make it? It's, there's got to be a better way. There's got to be something more realistic than just tying this all up. You know, every, every love problem we have in 60 minutes because we went on the love boat. It'd be great if it was that easy, but, but it isn't. The reality is we live in a world uh, where divorce rates are sky high. I mean, read the study or the, the statistics that you want, they're too high. It happens a lot and it's, we're not immune from it here. And I'm not here to demonize divorce today. Uh, God is for marriage. God wants marriage. God doesn't want to, people to divorce out of convenience or because they grew tired of each other or, or whatever it is. There are certain biblical grounds for divorce, adultery, and I would say in the totality of Scripture you could add uh, abuse and mental illness to that quite easily. But a lot of the reasons people divorce aren't biblical reasons. And then we have to carry the issue of that if, if we care about what God's Word says and and we, we do have grace for that. So if you're looking for a church that demonizes people who are divorced, I'm just going to, maybe you came today because you heard that I'm giving the sex talk. And, you know, so this is the one time you come to church every year or two is when we talk about sex. And well, welcome, I'm glad you're here, whatever campus you're at. Uh, and I'm happy to give the talk. We don't give it more than once or twice a year, uh, once every year or two because that's about how often it comes up in the Bible. And that's about the ratio we try to follow here too. But we don't ignore it either. I know that some would be afraid to approach this or think it's inappropriate for churches to talk about sex. I think the opposite is true. I think if we don't talk about it in church, we're conceding this wonderful gift that God has created to the world and saying you just go ahead and do it any way you want and set it up any way you want and put the morality around it any way you want and we ignore the creator of love, the, the one who established marriage, and the one who invented sex. That doesn't make sense to me. We have to talk about these things because it's where we live. Faith isn't just something that you, know, you can just detach from the rest of your life, and then when you need it, you come and you Velcro it onto the side of who you are. Faith is integrated into everything that we are, and this, this is where a lot of people live, and these are the things that a lot of people are, are thinking about and concerned about and are hurt because of. Uh, and so it behooves us to, to turn to God's word and to turn to the one who created love and who established marriage and who invented sex and see what at least God has to say about this gift that he invented and, and the, the boundaries he puts up around it and why. And, and, and whether or not we choose to live in those boundaries is fine. But if you came here just hoping for a whole sermon about do this, don't do that, here's where the boundaries are, here's where this church stands, and here's where we, and, and on these hot button social issues of our day, and we want to define the whole church on that, and, and we want to demonize divorced people, and, and really go after anybody who's, who's living Im immorally outside of the boundaries of God's will when it comes to sexual boundaries. If you came here looking for that, you're really in the wrong church, and I would say you're in the wrong Bible too. You're looking for things that the Bible just isn't going to give you, and it isn't going to satisfy you. If you're looking to use a sermon or Bible passages to condemn a bunch of people who uh, you see doing things in, in a way that, that you maybe don't think is right, that's not a Christ-centered approach. That isn't what children of God do. We don't take Bible bullets and then put them in our gun and then shoot people with them. Does that sound like Jesus to you? 
Now, he would challenge us, and he did, and he does. The living word of God is, there's going to be parts of this sermon that will comfort you, and you'll say, yes, amen, that's right. And then your other parts will be like, whoa, slow down there, preacher. That's not, well, now you're getting a little too close to home. If we're going to be honest, we all have some confessing to do when it comes to these issues, when it comes to these places. But the Bible says this. If we're going to turn to God's word and find out what the inventor of the gift says about the gift, he says this, give honor, let's read it together. Give honor to marriage and remain faithful to one another in marriage. God will surely judge people who are immoral and those who commit adultery. We live in a world where divorce rates are high. We live in a world where if you're a 25-year-old woman, there's a one out of four chance you have been sexually assaulted. What a mess we've made of this as a culture. One out of, if you're a 25-year-old woman or older, there's a one out of four chance you've been sexually assaulted. I don't think you need me to say how wrong that is, right? So when we do it our way, we get all sorts of messes. If that's still, if you got, if you got arms distance from that and you say, well, that doesn't really apply to me, I'm not divorced and that I'm in the three out of four or I'm not a woman, so it doesn't really hit me where I live. How about pornography? which gets its hooks into more than half the men in this church, if we're going to be honest. I mean, gets its hooks in deep to the point where it starts to change your life in a corrupt way. And it starts to reshape your brain and the way you look at women or the way you look at other human beings, whatever your attraction is. It starts to change the way you think about other human beings and who they are. If we're going to be honest... If we're going to be honest, we'll acknowledge that in Des Moines, Iowa, sex trafficking is a growing problem. For real. It's happening right here in this this wonderful little medium-sized city where we live. And it continues to expand and grow in a very dangerous way. Not just for the people who are involved, but for the people who are in this community who are connected to the people who are involved. You see, it breaks apart marriages, it breaks apart families, it burns down houses, it destroys us on all sorts of levels. Family is the fabric of our society, and if families start to fall apart, guess what happens to society? No matter how good the economy is, no matter, no matter how much strong we are as a nation, no matter, all those kinds of things, if we don't have families... If we don't have that foundation, if we don't have that fabric woven in that gives us strength, we're, we're going to fall apart and we're going to completely implode upon ourselves. We live in a, in a time when 11-year-old boys can start viewing pornography and neuroscientists who are doing the research on this now are starting to come out consistently and saying it absolutely corrupts and shapes that boy's brain for the rest of his life. For the rest of his life, it's not just how he's going to see women, it's the way he's going to see relationships. And and so, is it any wonder, scientists are saying, now that boy grows up and he becomes a man and he goes into a marriage and it's not going to work. It's spoiling his potential for a full relationship with with a woman someday, a long-term relationship, a marriage that's healthy. And it's not just for little kids either. Pornography is an equal opportunity destroyer of brains. The good news is, if you get off of that, if you turn around from that and get on a new path, your brain reshapes yet again. And you start being set free from the darkness that's in there. Pornography is not good for long-term relationships. 
It's not good for love. It's not good for your sex life in the long run either. Neither is promiscuity. All the studies show that couples who are promiscuous or, or individuals who are promiscuous when they're single have a way less chance of having a satisfying, healthy marriage someday if they ever get married. People who live together before they get married are making it harder to stay married after they get married, according to the statistics. Isn't it interesting that this all points us back to God's word? But this isn't just about you should do this, you shouldn't do that. I'll repeat that again. It's deeper than that. God's word always points us to a better way, a deeper truth, and a more abundant life. Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And so let's let him lead us there today. Let's follow and, and see where he leads. We live in a society and a culture where junior high school girls in our church family, this just breaks my heart, are pressured by their peers to send naked photos of themselves to their friends so that they can be seen and shared. That's the reality. I'm not saying it's the norm. I'm not saying all junior high kids are doing it, but some are. A significant sum are. And this is stuff we have to talk about. Parents, you have to talk about this with your kids. You have to have these conversations. I know they're awkward. Trust me, preaching about this stuff is awkward. But somebody has to love you enough to tell you the truth. Somebody has to love these kids enough to tell them the truth. Somebody has to point to something that's better. A better way, a deeper truth, and a more abundant life than the stuff that we're messing up. By getting too close to the fire, we're getting burned and we're burning other people. And on and on it goes. We have, uh, we have issues. High school students in this church who struggle with their sexual orientation have a, 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 maybe a same-sex attraction, and they have, feel such shame about it, they are afraid to tell family, they're afraid to tell friends, because they're afraid they won't have any friends anymore if they, if they come clean about their orientation. They're afraid they won't be accepted, they're afraid they won't be included, and in some cases, they get pushed to the brink of suicide. Are we okay with that? Is it worth it to, to make sure that we say this is right and this is wrong, so that we push teenagers to the brink of suicide? We've got to think more soberly and clearly about these issues. And we have to take the Bible for what it says, not what we want it to say. When we get all self-righteous and judgmental about it and start looking down our noses at people who aren't doing what we're doing. I read a book not too long ago that said there's two different kinds of sin. Their sin and your sin. <laughs> their sin's easy to talk about. Their sin's the one you want more sermons about. Their sin's the stuff that you want to use to, to go after everybody else. What about my sin? What about your personal, your sin? When it comes to these issues, maybe we start there humbly and with the confession. Whatever it is, we take it to the cross and we find God's grace. We also find God's law, the boundaries, the white lines on the highway that keep us from falling into the ditch, that keep us from having an accident. You don't have to stay inside of the white lines when you drive your car down the highway, but it's smart to do it. There's wisdom to staying between those lines, and when we don't, you can get hurt. Same thing with these boundaries that God gives, the inventor of the gift. Give honor to your marriage, whether you're married or not. Honor marriage by not breaking one up. Honor marriage by not leaving the person that you've made these vows to. Uh, sexually, faithfully, don't be unfaithful to that person. And if you are right now, stop it. The affair's over. As of this Sunday, as of today, as of right now, make the call after the service. We're done. 
It's over. Because I made a promise. I made vows to the person I'm with. It isn't going well maybe right now. That's why I strayed right now. People can say, you can try to justify it. The world can say, hey, you know, God wants you to be happy. Not that kind of happy. Why? Because there's no future in it. Give honor to marriage, the Bible says, because God cares about us. He doesn't want us to crash. Give honor to marriage and remain faithful to one another in marriage. God will surely judge people who are immoral. The Greek word here for immoral is pornography. (laughs) Same word in the Greek. God will surely judge people who wander off there and those who commit adultery. People hear things like this, and then the next verse, go ahead and go to the next screen, and they say, yes, see, this is why I don't go to the Bible for any sex advice, because it's so old-fashioned. Let's read this one together. It'll be fun, I promise. Yes, it is good to abstain from sexual relations. Some of you are like, oh, hallelujah, stay there a while, please. I'm going to go home, cut it out of my Bible, plaster it on the fridge, and say, see, the Bible says it's good to abstain. Read the rest of the chapter. This is the problem with proof texting. When you pull it out, it says, for a season, if you want to decide together mutually as a married couple to devote yourselves to prayer. So if during the season of Lent, you want to take a season off from this so that you can pray more together as a couple, Bible says go for that. But that's the problem with proof texting. People will hear or they'll quote something like this and they'll say the the Bible is anti-sex. The Bible is anti-intimacy. The Bible doesn't know anything about these things. Let me show you very, very, very briefly because I'm Norwegian and I'm going to faint if it takes any longer than briefly. But let me show you just some examples of what the Bible actually says if you think it's anti-sex. Everyone turn to the person next to you and say, we're going to be okay, deep breath. Okay, ready, go. Go ahead and just read through this real quickly to yourself. Go ahead, just read to it about this general area right around here. Who wants to come up and read it out loud? (laughs) This is in the Bible. Let your wife be a fountain of blessing for you. Rejoice in the wife of your youth. She is a loving deer, a graceful doe. Let her, and on and on it goes. (laughs) It's very specific. And if we're going to be honest, we say, aha, maybe the Bible's more relevant than I thought. Maybe it does hit me where I live. Maybe God does care about the details of my life. Maybe God is in this. And you say, well, that's just one verse from Proverbs. And, you know, may you always be captivated by your love. That's great. And, and so that's just one example. The Bible's a really big, long book. And I'm sure you can find anything about anything if you look hard enough. How about dozens and dozens of different places? I'm not going to show you all of them. But there's a whole book of the Bible called Song of Solomon, or sometimes called Song of Songs, same book, that's all about a married couple celebrating, and I mean shouting it from the mountaintop, celebrating their um, physical intimacy, their, their oneness, their bond, and it isn't just talking about it emotionally, it's talking about it sexually. May your kisses be as exciting, isn't that beautiful, as the best wine, yes, wine that goes down smoothly for my lover, it's like a bad SNL skit now, <laughs> flowing gently over her lips and teeth. And then she responds, I am my lover's and he claims me as his own. And she goes on and on. And I'm not even going to show you that. But a lot of you are like, I'm reading Song of Songs later today. This is awesome. (laughs) The book of Ruth. Some of you are like, Ruth? 
Ruth, when you think of Ruth, that's that Old Testament book, talked about it last week. She's friends with Naomi. She was loyal. Yeah, but she was married to Boaz. Boaz and Ruth had a um, very saucy sort of relationship. And if you read Ruth, you catch that. And you can go home and read Ruth. You're like, yeah, where did it say that? It says Ruth was sitting at the, at the feet of Boaz during the, during the Old Testament. And you say, well, it, it, what's sitting at the feet? What does that mean? I don't know how to say this except to say it. When the Old Testament in the Hebrew says feet, it doesn't mean feet most of the time. <laughs> Okay, we're going to move right on. And you can just go ahead and kind of work that through it and think that out. That's in the Bible. Now, you can get offended. You say, this is totally inappropriate. I don't want to hear about these things at church. Okay, so fine. You want a detached faith then, right? You want a faith that's just about certain things but not about other things in your life. Well, that's an incomplete faith. God wants more than that for us. He has a better way, a deeper truth. He has a more abundant life for us. He says this too, the two are united as one. Uh, that means emotionally, that means spiritually, that means uh, physically, sexually. That's in every possible way in the Hebrew, and that's very clear in the Hebrew. And this is from the beginning of creation. This is Adam and Eve. God's the one who established their union, has invented the whole gift, uh, brought them together as husband and wife. And he said, a man leaves his father and mother Quick little aside, this is why some couples struggle is because the man didn't leave mommy and daddy. The man is still mommy's boy or daddy's boy more than he's this woman's wife. And that's a problem. And it can go the other way too. Wives can do the same thing too. They can be daddy's girl or mommy's girl and they never leave. One of the first advice basically God is giving in the beginning of creation is you leave your father and mother. That's where you grow up. But when you get married, you have a new home. When you get married, you have a new family. It's not that you're, you have to divorce your old family. They're still your family. But when you get married, that's family now. That's family. And, and, and you don't give first loyalty back to mom and dad, and then if this guy fits in or if this woman fits in, then that's fine. No, that is your family now. You leave father and mother, and you become joined to your wife, and the two are united as one. The Bible is not anti-sex. People say, well, yeah, but the Bible's anti-woman. No, it's not. Biblical times were anti-woman. They were misogynistic, no doubt about it. And from Old Testament through New Testament, men would sell their daughters in, into marriage, marriage contracts. Uh, uh, men would uh, lord it over women. Men would have multiple wives. Women couldn't have multiple husbands. It was a tip scale. Sinful, wrong, fallen. God never, God never, God never blesses that. No, in, the Bible describes the culture, but the Bible never endorses it. The Bible never says that's the way God wants it. God wants a man to have hundreds of wives or, or three wives. Or, 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 or God wants a man to sell his daughter into marriage. That's the culture. That's the fallen world. Before the fall, it's a man and a woman, a husband and a wife. The two come together as one. That's God's invention. That's how God established marriage. We can come up with all sorts of different math. We can say it could be multiple spouses. It can be group thing. It can be all sorts of different things. But that's the fallen world. And that's us starting fires and making messes. And that's us ignoring the inventor of the gift. God says the two are joined together as one. 
And he also says this, which makes it all the more radical because nobody else was teaching this in biblical times. When God speaks about the inequality between men and women in biblical times, his word always levels the playing field. The husband should fulfill the wife's needs, the sexual needs. The wife should fulfill her husband's sexual needs as well. The wife gives authority over her body to her husband. The husband gives authority over his body to his wife. Be careful here. This does not mean manipulation. This does not mean coercion. This does not mean, hey, the Bible says you have to do this with me because we're married. That's never biblical. That's not Christ-centered. It's always an outflow of trust. It's first things first. It's trust and relationship and love in marriage, and that leads to sex. Not we have sex so we can get closer. Or, 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 or sex is this thing that we have to do because the Bible says that's not the tone of this passage. It's a, it, it, it's a natural outflow of the love that two people share as husband and wife. The Bible's not anti-woman because it's, please note this, equal playing field. It goes both ways. It's not just one way, it's mutual. There has to be a mutual agreement that this is what God has given for us to share and we choose to share it mutually, not just one. The Bible also says this. It says, and further submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Next verse says, wives, submit to your husbands. Cringe, right? Some people. Does it really say that? Wives have to submit to their husbands? Yes. Now read a few verses later. Husbands, you also must submit to your wives. In fact, it goes on to say, husbands, submit to your wives at such a level that you follow the example of Christ, the way he, as the groom, submitted to his wife, the church. Willing to sacrifice his life for the church. Willing to give it all up for her, the church. That's your model, men, husbands. That's how you treat your wives. Submit to her so much that you're willing to die for her. You're willing to give your whole life for her. That's a biblical husband. It's mutual submission. Let me ask you this. How do the two ever become one, which the Bible says is the goal in a marriage, if you're playing tug of war? How do the two become one if you look at your marriage and say, what's in this for me? What can I get out of this relationship? What can I get from her? Or she could say, what can, he get, what can she get from me? What, what, what can I get out of this? What a selfish perspective. What's in this relationship? What, what, what can I get in it emotionally? What can I get out of it physically? What, what, what can I get out of it spiritually? What, what's in this for me? When you get married, the me turns into a we. And so instead of thinking about yourself first, you start thinking about yourselves as a couple first. Before you start saying, well, I don't know if I want to do this because, you know, what's in this for me? It's not that you're marrying somebody who's exactly like you, but this is the beauty and the wonder of marriage. Two, two different people become one. It's a holy mystery. It's a sacred thing. And it's a blessed bond. And ask the people in this church who've been married over 50 years. And I can see some of them from where I'm standing right now. And they sit here during the sermons, and they hold hands, and they cuddle, and they run their fingers through each other's hair, and it's disgusting. <laughs> it's, it's, not, it's not disgusting at all. It's awesome. Do you know why? They're more in love with each other now than they were when they got engaged. Because they've done life together. Because they've learned. It's not because they like each other all that much, all the time. They do, probably, hopefully, a little. 
but they choose love for each other over and over and over again, day after day after day, instead of expecting the other person to be perfect. The best marriage advice I ever got was my old grumpy seminary New Testament professor who ran into Sally and me at a video store when we were engaged. And I said, Dr. Harrisville, I want you to meet my fiance, Sally. And he looks at me and he says in his grumpy, gruff way, he says, let me tell you something, householder. Don't ever expect her to be perfect. And he walked away. (laughs) I thought, what a grumpy old man thing to say. And I've never forgotten it. Don't expect your spouse to be perfect because you'll be disappointed and you're really making it impossible for your spouse to come through. There's no way. The whole, you complete me, oh, give me a break. (laughs) I mean, I get it in love, and that's nice, and it makes for a nice movie line, and I cried too, and you know, that's nice, It's, it's great. But you're complete by yourself because you're a child of God. See, that's the other thing. People say the Bible's anti single people. Uh, No, it's not. Paul says, I wish everyone was single, just just like me, a little bit arrogantly. You don't, you're not half a piece of jewelry who needs the other half of the piece of jewelry in order to be a whole. You're not half a person who needs another half a person in order to become one. That's not what the Bible says. It doesn't say a half and a half become one. It says two whole individuals become one. You aren't the same, and that's the beautiful mystery of it. My wife last night, while we're going to bed, she says, I'm so excited for tomorrow. I'm like, oh, thanks, honey. You really like the sermon. It wasn't about the sermon at all. She goes, I'm so excited for tomorrow. I'm like, oh, I know what you're saying now. Daytona 500. (laughs) She's like, oh, that's tomorrow? I didn't know. (laughs) The Oscars are on tonight. It's the the Academy. And I'm a movie buff, and I'm into it, so I'll I'll watch because I love her. But, I mean, I'm kind of semi-excited about that, but the Daytona 500's on. She says, the Oscars are on. That's not half of her and half of me making one whole. That's all of her and all of me. And if God can bring us together as one, because we're mutually submitting to one another, because we're waking up in the morning saying, what can I do to serve you? What can I do to outgive you today? What can I do to outlove you today? What can I do to woo you today like I wooed you once upon a time? What can I do to make you fall in love with me all over again today? How can I serve your emotional needs? In order to do that, I need to know what her emotional needs are. I need to listen instead of just trying to meet the needs that I think I'd want to be met. We're not the same person. I'm Daytona 500. She's Academy Awards. And probably have to watch the red carpet ahead of time, too. (laughs) Not by my choice, but because we're one. Because we do life together. Because that's what the gift that God has given for us to share. So we want to share it well. (laughs) Let me say this. I haven't said this in any of the other sermons, but I'm going to say it now because I don't want to let this theme pass without saying it. People look at me and I think sometimes they think, oh, the greatest thing in your life has to be Lutheran Church of Hope, doesn't it? It has to be that you're the senior pastor of this church, and isn't it great? I mean, it just has to be the greatest thing ever in your life, right? Not even close. I mean, that's a great thing. It's a, it's a blessing. I, I'm so blessed to be your pastor. I truly am. She's the greatest blessing in my life. 29 years we've been married. It's not even close. 
It's not even close. And it's not because I'm such a great husband, and it's partly and a lot because she's such a great wife, but it's because we're a great we. It's because we put we ahead of me's. It's because we see it that way, and we not perfectly, oh my goodness, there's no perfect marriage. We do not have a perfect marriage. Sometimes, I mean, poof. <laughs> we go out and we order food at a restaurant, I'm like, oh, I'll take this one. And she's like, okay, here's what we're gonna do. I'm gonna take a little bit of this and we're gonna mix it in with that and I'm gonna pull it over here. We're gonna put on some of that and we're gonna mix it. Can I have this and is this any good? And what do you think? 20 minutes later, we've ordered. I love you, baby. I really do, but come on. And it's like, what? Two different people become one. Greatest thing in my life. Nothing is even close. Greatest thing. But here's the thing. That doesn't mean you have to be married to experience the greatest things in life. You don't. That's just us. That's just our story. What's your story? Do you want to tell Paul he's just half a person because he isn't married? Do you want to tell Jesus he's just half of a human being because he isn't married? He never did get married. Oh, I know there's conspiracy books that said he did, but I'm sure they're not writing those in order to make a lot of money. Follow the money. The Bible's pretty clear. Jesus isn't married. Paul isn't married. Paul says, if you're single, that's great. You're good the way you are. So listen, married people at Lutheran Church of Hope, leave the single people alone. Stop trying to get them married. Stop looking at them and saying, my job is to make sure you get married. Now, if they come to you and say, please be my matchmaker, help me get married, then dive in. But enough of this attitude that's, that kind of looks at people who are single adults in this church and says, oh, gee, that's too bad. It's not too bad. It's who they are, and they can be just as fulfilled in their lives as children of God and followers of Jesus Christ as anybody who's married. You, if you aren't complete as a single person, getting married isn't going to complete you. It isn't going to be enough. If you need somebody else to be your other half, you'll never be whole. It'll never be enough to make you right. That's biblical and that's truth and that'll set us free if we go back to the one who created the gift. It is an incredible blessing, but you're fine the way you are. You're good. You're, a good, you're as good as anybody else, single adults at Lutheran Church of Hope. We love you and you are good. Can I get an amen from the married people at all campuses? Amen. Well, there's your amen. Good. The Bible's not anti-single, the Bible's not anti-woman, the Bible's not anti-sex, but the Bible does have something to say to us about these boundaries, and I'll wrap up here. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 1, Paul says, now regarding the questions, and their questions are about sex, marriage, and being single and where the boundaries are. See, Paul wrote letters to his churches that he started as a missionary, and then when he would go out and start other churches, those churches would write him letters back. His letters back to them, many of them become the Bible, the New Testament. First Corinthians is his first letter that he wrote to the Corinthians in response to their questions. They had questions about sexual boundaries, marriage, being single, being married. Paul, where do you stand on this hot button social issue of our day? Imagine if you will, I mean it's hard to imagine in 2017 United States of America, but imagine we had some divisive hot button social issues that we're dealing with as a culture. Try to imagine it. You're going to have to stretch a little bit to get there, I know. But imagine how tumultuous that might be. Imagine how dangerous and how many landmines there might be there. Paul was in that kind of a day. And so the church asked him, as a pastor, where do you stand on this stuff that we're divided over, that we're debating? 
We need you to tell the people who are wrong they're wrong, take your side. And those of us who are right that we're right, pick your side. So Paul, where do you stand on these issues? Because isn't that what Christianity is all about? Who's right and who's wrong and where the moral line is drawn? And Paul says, no. It's so not about that. Let me show you a better way, a deeper truth, and a more abundant life. If you look close at this stained glass here, this word, the word way is here. The word truth is here, all the letters. The word life is here. Let me show you a better way, a deeper truth, and a more abundant life. I know you've got questions and you want me to take a stand and say you're right and you're wrong. But please notice by the time Paul finally gets to their questions, it's not that he isn't going to answer them. It's not that we won't answer them here either. People call us all the time or send us messages. Where does your church stand on yip, bit bit boo whatever it is? Pick your hot button social issue. Where do you stand on zip, zip, zippity doo da day? Where are you on this? Where are you on that? As if that was the defining issue of Christianity today. And you know what breaks my heart? We've let them do it. We've let the culture set the agenda. We've let the culture define us as the church. With all due respect, the Bible does not bow down to the agenda of a culture that is trying to push us in the same way they tried to push Paul once upon a time to say, it's all about where you stand on this issue. And if you don't agree with me on this issue, wherever you stand, whatever side of it you're on, if you don't agree with where I stand, I'm out. I'm out. I agree with 90% of what happens in this church, but if I disagree with that 10%, I'm gone. Does that sound like Jesus to you? Does that sound like the unity of the body of Christ that the Bible speaks about? Does that, does that point us to something that's a deeper truth? It does. And Paul lays this out beautifully. The first six chapters, he doesn't even touch it. He, doesn't, he says, you know what? Before I get to your questions, chapter 7, that means for six chapters he talked about something else. Go home and read about it. Do you want to know what he talked about? Divisions in the church. Let me give you an answer you weren't looking for, but the one you really need. Let me address your questions by pointing you to a deeper truth in a better way, in a more abundant life. Let me answer that by actually pointing out something else. I appeal to you, church, live in harmony with each other, even when you disagree about these things, even when you disagree about sexual boundaries, even when you disagree about food laws, even when you agree about things that are on this side of the line or that side of the line. That's not the main thing. And shame on us for ever allowing the church, the bride of Christ, to be reduced to something as small as that. Important as it is, not, are you telling me it's as important as the gospel of Jesus Christ? As important as the saving grace that God gives to us through his son Jesus who died on the cross, who shed his blood as a sacrifice for our sins and was raised up to a new and an everlasting life to open up the door to eternal life in the kingdom of heaven forever for anybody who hears this good news and we're going to get distracted over hot button social issues and we're going to let it divide the church? Oh, please. Don't go there, church. I appeal to you. Live in harmony with each other. Don't do it like the rest of America and the church in America is doing these days. Be an exception to the rule, Lutheran Church Hall. Don't do it. Refuse. These are dangerous times for the church. I mean dangerous times. 
I appeal to you, live in harmony. And then Paul goes on to say, okay, you asked about the issues, their sin, right? You want to talk about their sin? And Paul says, before I do that in chapter 5, let me point out yours. Can hardly believe it. It's like watching the Jerry Springer show. The report of the sexual immorality going on among you. Something pagans don't even do. I'm told there's a man in your church who's living in sin with his stepmother. There's a guy in your church who's dating his father's wife. Paul's saying, that is so messed up. You can't do that. That's right. You, you know, you're asking me these questions about these things you want to talk about, but you won't look at your own sin. You won't look at the thing, your divisions, your disorder, your immorality, the things that are destroying you as a church. Before you start pointing the finger or thinking the whole goal of the church is to point fingers to people who are doing morally wrong things, before you go there, don't lose the gospel. Don't lose the cross and the empty tomb. Don't lose salvation over this. Don't lose the unity of the body of Christ over these things. And don't wander off into such disorder that you think it's all about them and you can't even acknowledge the things that you're doing that are so disgusting I can't hardly even name them, Paul says. Then we turn the page and he says, okay, you want boundaries? Let me answer your specific questions. Here's where the boundaries are. The gift of sex is to be shared between a husband and a wife inside the boundaries of a marriage. Those are the boundaries. You can like them or dislike them, you agree with them, disagree with them. That's what the Bible says. Now, we can do a lot of things with these boundaries. The Bible says it's better to marry than to burn. This gets misinterpreted and abused. People say, well, I guess I have to get married then because I don't want to burn. <laughs> Turn or burn, I'm getting married. Why? Well, I don't want to burn. <laughs> Paul's saying, look, you, you got to keep these things in check. Practice the spiritual gift of self-control. And it, he's not saying burn with lust. This is a really unfortunate translation in the NLT. The original Greek says burn with passion, and passion isn't a negative word here. It's a positive. A, a, a fire, a, a passion. Many years ago, I uh, bought a grill. It's not this one. It was smaller. This isn't even mine. <laughs> but I'm glad it's here. It was about half the size. I bought it at Menards for $99 because I wanted to impress my young wife as a young husband and our young boys. I wanted to show them what being a man's all about. <laughs> so one of the ways suburban men prove their manhood is they get a grill. <laughs> and they cook meat. And they make, they make dinner <laughs> for the family. So I got the $99 uh, cheapest thing I could find home from Menards, started following the instructions, putting it together, got bored with the instructions because I'm a man, started winging it. And I noticed that when I uh, hooked up the gas tank to the rest of the grill, um, there was a smell. <laughs> I call it a gas smell, but I figured that's just standard. And so then I went on and I... <laughs> And then I noticed, not only is there a gas smell, but there's a hissing sound. And I figured, well, that must just be the first time. And so I got it all put together, or so I thought, and I had my young wife come out onto the deck holding our little baby Danny, who was one at the time, and our oldest son, John, who was three. And I was like, John, this is going to be great. Daddy's going to fire up the grill for the first time. Everybody, here we go. Let's count down together. Three, two, one. And I hit the handy-dandy button. Nothing. Thank God, nothing happened. 
Nothing. And so I hit it 10 more times. Maybe I'm just not, that's what a man does. I'll hit it more. And then in humiliation, I said, I better go look at the instructions. And I looked at the instructions and it said, if your little handy dandy button doesn't like, take one of these. I know. <laughs> you don't need me to tell the rest of the story, do you? But I will. Stick it in the hole underneath here and light it. Fire. I'm like, okay, here we go. Way too overconfident. Did I mention the hissing sound in the gas tank? So I put the little doohickey in, 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 inside of the grill and I said, okay, let's count down, family. Three, two, one. <laughs> Some of you wonder why when I preach evangelical sermons I get so passionate about people getting saved from the fiery furnace of hell. Because I've caught a glimpse. <laughs> Eyebrows are being singed. Fireballs are blowing up on the deck. My wife's trying not to scream because she loves me and we're <laughs> covering up the baby. Jonathan is three-year-old, a boy, a man in training, and he's kind of paralyzed. Whoa. Is it supposed to do that? <laughs> Your mother screaming should tell you no is the answer to that question, son. I stopped, dropped, and rolled, and then I got up and I closed the thing, and it went out, and so not as much drama as it could have been. There's nothing wrong with fire. There's nothing wrong with fire. There's nothing wrong with passion unless you use it without following the instructions, unless you use it without boundaries. I just love my job. <laughs> Here's the way a lot of us live our lives sexually. Last night when I did this part of the sermon, my wife sitting right over there, I could hear her gasp audibly. And I looked over and she had her hand on her face saying, Mike, no, no. Some of you are thinking, you should have listened to your wife. You're like, that's it. I mean, you can preach about sex all you want, but you start lighting the church on fire, I'm gonna become a Presbyterian, I'm out of here, that's it. It's not lighter fluid, it's water. At least that's what they told me. I'm not gonna light it. But we do, don't we? Imagine it is, it, this is a wood floor which we have to redo anyway, so I figured why not go out in style <laughs> and spend 12 years. Um, which fire is better for you? Wh which, one, which one do you want to go with? You see, fire when it has boundaries is a wonderful thing. You can cook entire meals for your family. You can bless the world around you. You can enjoy completely the fire. Fires that are set just carelessly, wherever you feel like setting a fire, hey baby, those burn people. That's when people get hurt. 
But it's a cold world out there, right? So people see fires like this, they're like, well, that looks nice. There's light and there's warmth and there's heat. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll just warm up over here by this fire and then we get burned. Maybe I'll have that affair or I'll be promiscuous or I'll just give myself away like that or I'll give in to temptation or the peer pressure or I'll, do all the, I'll just make up my own rules or I'll follow the world's rules when it comes to this. Everybody else is hanging out by this fire. Why shouldn't I? Because you're going to get hurt. Because you're going to burn other people. And see, that's, that's the problem with it. It's not that there's anything wrong with the gift. It's that when that gift has boundaries around it, it becomes a blessing. Maybe you hear this and you say, all right, well, so now I've just got a lot of guilt and shame. That's not why I said it. It's not why the Bible says it, but that's the way a lot of these sermons go. You say, well, this is wrong, this is bad, so we'll just pour some of God's word on it. For approximately two or three days, I'll have a changed life. And then I'll go back to the old ways. And I'll barely remember the message. Or, the better way, the deeper truth, and the more abundant life would be not to see it as a stop doing this and start doing that, but would be a complete surrender of trust to the only one who's worthy of your complete trust, Jesus Christ. And you hit the do-over button with me today. And if we're all going to be honest, we all have some do-over to do. We, we, we punch the button and we say, I I'm going to take that grace, God. I'm, I'm not going to try to fix my shame and guilt with more shame and guilt. The idea isn't that you walk out of here with shame and guilt. The idea is that you walk out of here with new life, better way, deeper truth, more abundant life. Because Jesus Christ is the one who has the power to turn our lives around, to reshape our minds, to put us on a whole new path. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He alone has this power. So do not be attracted by strange new ideas. Your strength comes from God's grace. Grace, everyone say grace. grace. Say it again, say grace. grace. Say it like you're Pentecostal, lean into it. Grace. grace, it's for you. That's what this sermon is all about. That's what the Bible is all about. It is about God's grace for you and giving you a complete do-over. Start over. No more fires like this. No more getting burned. No more getting attracted by the light and the heat that's all over the world. Trust. Trust the one who's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Trust his grace to forgive you completely, completely for all the messes you've made in the past. All of them. The divorces, the affairs, the adultery, the promiscuity, the, the, the pornography, all of it. Trust him to forgive you for that. His grace is sufficient for you. And then get on a new path. Jesus always, always, his word always points us to a better way, a deeper truth and a more abundant life. And it comes to us by grace by grace, by grace. And now as you walk out, you'll hear the doors saying, come on, baby, light my fire. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Go in peace, serve the Lord.